Well, today we're going to be doing something a, a little bit different in our study. Our whole series is focused on the life of Jesus, who he is, what he really taught, what he really said, what his life was really about. And, and today we come to a character named John the Baptist. And John appears in all four Gospels, the four books in the Bible that are specifically about the life of Jesus Christ. And so one of the things we did today to give the most complete picture, it's the first time we've done this, is we just sort of took verses from three of those accounts to form the most complete narrative we could. And I gave it to you as like a bonus outline today. So that's what we're going to be working through. And on there it's listed where those references are from. But this is just so that you guys don't have to flip back and forth between Luke, Matthew, John, Mark, Matthew, and it doesn't turn into one big competition, although I'm sure for some of you that would be very exciting. So we're focusing on the man that Jesus chose to go before him. Jesus sent this man with a specific ministry and message designed to pave the way for the arrival of Jesus. So whatever this message is, it's going to tell us a lot about Jesus, and it's going to be incredibly important. If I told you Jesus is coming over to your house at 3 p.m. today, what would your reaction be? Some of you would be like, well, I know where I'll be at 3 p.m., not at my house. Some of you would frantically run around cleaning up. Maybe you'd uh, delete your internet history. Uh, but you would know deep down when, when Jesus shows up, he's going to look straight into the depths of your heart, and he's going to know everything about you. So imagine being faced with the question, Jesus is coming. What are you going to do to get ready? And that's what today's message is all about. That's what the ministry of John was all about. Jesus is coming. Get ready. Here's how you can do that. So the first thing you need to know about John the Baptist is that this is not the same John who was one of the 12 apostles, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. That John wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1, 2, and 3 John. He wrote the book of Revelation all in the Bible. This is a different John. He's not called John the Baptist because he went to a Baptist church. They don't call him John the Presbyterian if you go to a Presbyterian church. He was called John the Baptist because he had a ministry of baptism. John was the first child born to two very old parents. Zacharias, who was a priest in the temple, and Elizabeth, who was actually a relative of Mary, the mother of Jesus. John was a, a miracle child. An angel visited Zacharias while he was working in the temple. And there were all kinds of miraculous events surrounding the birth of John. And we're not going to go into that right now. We've taught on that. I put on your outline some of the teachings you can go back and listen to if you want more information about John's birth. John was born three months before Jesus, and he was born with a very specific purpose and mission. The, the Bible tells us that John, even in utero, was full of the Holy Spirit. Full of the Holy Spirit. From the moment he was conceived in his mother's womb, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't think many of us can, can make that claim. But he was full of the Holy Spirit. We don't really know anything about John's childhood. We know he was on fire for God from day one, but we do know around the age of 18, he moved out of his home, because he's a responsible young man, into the wilderness. And if you're thinking, that's an interesting choice. I, I would have gone with a basement suite, but the wilderness will work too. But I want to tell you why John did that. There, there are men in the Bible who are specifically called to be messengers of God special messengers of God. And these men are called prophets. And what God does in scriptures, he pulls them out of the normal everyday life of the world and he isolates them in a place like the wilderness. So they don't really 
interact with anybody. They dress crazy. They spend all day in prayer and fellowship with God. And then in the Old Testament, they would show up and do something unbelievably miraculous or, or speak something incredibly profound and powerful. If you saw a prophet coming into your town, usually their reaction was like, oh no, something's going down. Something is going down. There were prophets in the Bible who would do a miracle then disappear for seven years into the wilderness, doing nothing but hanging out with God. And then seven years later, they'd show up again. These guys had an epic epic ministry they would do things like walk right into the court of a king point a finger at him and say hey you're in sin god doesn't like it you better stop it or he's going to kill you just crazy crazy stuff like that and john has this call to become a prophet and he's born with that calling so he moves out into the wilderness around the age of 18 he lives such a righteous life that later on jesus christ will say that outside of himself john is the greatest man who's ever lived That's quite an endorsement. I would love to have that on my resume. The greatest man who ever lived, Jesus Christ. You know, attributed as a quote. I think that would be fantastic. This is who John is, and uh, we're gonna pick up our story around 12 years later. He's around the age of 30. It's about the fall of 28 AD. And his story, as we mentioned, shows up in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're gonna jump in. This is gonna be on your outline. It says, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Ituria and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. There's seven major names there, and we're not gonna spend a lot of time on this. All I want to point out is those names allow us to very precisely date the ministry of Jesus Christ because these are people who ruled and reigned and they're verified by secular historians and they let us know that Jesus' ministry happened around the time period of 29 AD to 32 AD. We'll keep reading. It says, In those days John the Baptist came baptizing in the wilderness of Judea and he went into all the region around the Jordan. Now John preached and baptized people, this is your first fill-in, in a place called Bethabara. Bethabara. Bethabara is on the banks of the Jordan River. On, on one side is the wilderness, and on the other is essentially Israel. And centuries and centuries earlier, something very interesting happened in the exact same place that John is doing his ministry. Centuries earlier, when the people of Israel have been let out of Egypt and slavery, Moses has led them out. They go into the wilderness. Here's what basically happens. God says, I want to take you to this amazing land. It's called the promised land where modern day Israel is right now. God says, I want to take you there, but you know, we've just got to go through the wilderness for a while to get there. There's a ton of symbolism in there, but they go out of Egypt into the wilderness, and then they're going to go into the promised land. That's the plan. While they're in the wilderness, they lose faith. They lose faith and they basically stop believing that God has a plan. And the one thing that God cannot work with is unbelief. And so God says, okay, 
well, we got to solve this problem, so just spend 40 years in the wilderness, then everyone who doesn't believe will die out, and we'll give this a go again with the next generation. The next generation is led by a man named Joshua. Joshua says, let's do this. So God takes him out the wilderness. The first faith challenge they come to is the Jordan River. It's a raging, rushing river. They've got hundreds of thousands of armed men that they want to take across the river to go start fighting battles and taking the land. God does a miracle there. The priests go into the water. They stand in it, and the water basically recedes, and they just walk across an ankle-deep water onto the other side. It's a miraculous, miraculous thing. And this is the place where John is baptizing people. To mark the occasion... God has the Israelites, when they cross the river, set up a monument. And the monument is 12 large stones in a pile, basically. And the 12 stones represent the 12 tribes that make up the nation of Israel. God says, make this monument and then point it out to your kids in the future so that you will be reminded to tell them about everything I've done for you. Everything I've done for you. So there's this large monument that they can see from where John is doing his ministry. Let's continue with the text. It says, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough way smooth. And all flesh, all flesh, shall see the salvation of God. So let's break this down. So, so first of all, what, what is baptism? If you've grown up in the church, you know. But if you haven't, you might not be entirely sure what baptism is. Uh, the term was actually invented about 500 B.C. to describe the process of dyeing cloth in water. You would take the cloth and put it in liquid that was full of dye, and it would change the essential nature of the cloth. It would change its color, it would change its value, it would change its identity. And the person who dunked that, their job was called being a baptizer. That's what they did. And that's where the term comes from. So baptism, most simply put, means immersion. It means to be fully submerged. Now, not to open a can of worms, but this is why the Bible calls for immersion. There's no mention in Scripture anywhere of anybody ever being sprinkled or doused or anything like that. The term baptism actually means immersion going fully under the water. That's what the term means. So people were coming to John, and he would basically dunk them, fully immerse them in the Jordan River in a baptism of repentance. That's why he's called John the Baptist. And this is a very, very different baptism from the baptism we celebrate today. Repentance, the word, means literally to change one's mind to change one's mind. Repentance does not mean to be really sorry. Repentance does not mean to cry. Repentance does not mean to repeat a magical prayer after the preacher or after the priest. It means to change your mind about something. And John was preaching a hard, hard truth to people. He was saying all the sins that we've committed have separated us from God. And, and because of this, We've all rejected God by sinning against him. And there's nothing we can do to make up for rejecting God. We, we can't really balance those scales. God lacks nothing. So there's nothing we can give him to balance out this equation. But someone is coming, a, a savior is coming, who will balance these scales for you and me. 
That's the message of John. And then John would invite people to be baptized as a sign that they recognized their own sin. They recognized that they needed a Savior, and they believed in faith that God would send one. Every person who got baptized under John was essentially saying, I admit in front of everybody, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. I need forgiveness. It was an acknowledgement of that truth. Today, our baptisms celebrate that Savior that was sent, Jesus Christ. We're baptized as an outward sign that Jesus is our Savior. Simply put, John's baptism was all about what Jesus was going to do, and our baptism is all about what Jesus has done. Both John's baptism and our modern-day baptism don't save anybody. They don't save anybody. They're both outward demonstrations of an inward change, what's gone on inside the heart, a change of heart. And we all, we all find ourselves in, in the wilderness of life at some point. Sometimes you've been saved and you expect everything to immediately get better, but just like the Israelites, you were set free in Egypt and you find yourself in the wilderness and you're thinking, huh? Isn't, isn't it supposed to be green grass and rolling meadows and pleasant music now? But you're in the wilderness, you're halfway between. Sometimes you're in the promised land and it's good and you don't know what happened, but you wake up one day and you realize you're in the wilderness. You're wondering, how did I get here? What, what is going on? Sometimes we get there by our own choices. We just become distant from God. What's interesting, what's very, very interesting is that when we find ourselves in the wilderness and we don't know God yet, we are brought there by God. There's something that happens in our life that makes us question whether we have everything that we need. And it's in that moment that we discover Jesus Christ. It's in that moment when we realize we don't have everything we need. We don't have it all figured out. We need help. We need forgiveness. We find God in the wilderness. And so what has to happen at the Jordan before we can cross over into God's presence? It's repentance. Quite simply put, repentance is the bridge between the wilderness and the presence of God. Repentance is the bridge into God's kingdom. The prophecy that they mentioned is in the book of Isaiah in the Bible. And this is what it's talking about. When, when a king would travel, he would basically send workers ahead of him on the road and they would go and they would fill in all the potholes. They would smooth out the rough places so when the king came riding through, he could just fly through and it would be smooth sailing. They would go on ahead of him. And the prophecy in Isaiah is saying this is the ministry that's been given to John. He's been called to go before Jesus and prepare the way for Jesus. And it's very interesting because John's ministry literally does that. Because of John's message and people who he is baptizing, when Jesus shows up, which we'll see next week, there is a large group of people who are ready willing and waiting for the message of Jesus. So Jesus is able to start his ministry on a very encouraging note by having a large number of conversions immediately that were generated by John's ministry. So John goes before Jesus to prepare the way. And, and you never want to forget that Jesus is human. And he needed encouragement just like every single other human being does. And so God orchestrated events so that Jesus' ministry would begin with this massive demonstration, this massive encouragement of what was going to take place across all of history to follow. That's the ministry that John is given. 
And so I want to stop here and point something out because this, this is really, really crucial. You know, out of all the messages that Jesus could have sent ahead of himself, he sent the message of repentance. And Jesus could have sent anything. He could have said, I'm coming, so tell them that I love, love, love them. Jesus could have said, I'm, I'm coming, so tell all the rich fat cats that I'm going to bring justice and equality to the world. Jesus could have said, I'm, I'm coming, so John, you tell them that I'm going to heal the sick. And those are all good things, but, but Jesus doesn't choose that as the message. He chooses the message of repentance. And the simple reason is that there is no more important message than that. Jesus understands, listen, the ultimate reason I'm coming is because there is a problem that no human being can fix. Every single person on the earth is on a path to death and destruction. And I'm coming to save people. Tell them that. Make them ready to know that a Savior is coming. If you, if you would imagine that every single person in the world was sick with an incurable disease, and somebody has the cure and they have a ton of it, as much as is needed, the messenger that they would send ahead of them would be, tell them I'm coming, tell them to get ready, tell them to be at this place at this time. That would be the message. Because nothing else would be more important. Nothing else would be more important than that. And that's what Jesus says. He says, I'm coming to save people. Repentance is all about recognizing our need for a savior. It's all about recognizing our need for a savior. If, if you imagine that you were drowning and you were in a boat trying to save a person in the storm, you can throw that ring, that life preserver with a rope on it. You can throw it out again and again and again. The person still has to hook their arm in it. They still have to hook their arm in it. And that's what repentance is all about. The baptism of John is people saying, listen, I need saving. I need saving. They're changing their mind from saying, I've got it all together, to now saying, I need a savior. That's what repentance is. It's changing their core beliefs about who they are. John's message was quite simply, you're drowning. You're drowning. Stop lying to yourself. Look around, see what's happening, and change your mind. Repent. Just as John's ministry came before Jesus' ministry, repentance comes before salvation and the forgiveness of sins. When we do that, it moves the heart of God to pour out his grace and to pour out his compassion. Check this out in the text. It says, Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. There's no question in my mind that John is the original hipster. This dude is, is wearing camel's hair, so people are coming up to him and they're saying, like, what, what are you wearing? And he's like, you probably never heard of it, you know. Cotton, no. Poly blend, too mainstream. Cat camel hair, leather belt. Rocking it. Hipster level, John the Baptist. The original hipster. He ate honey and locusts. Now, now it's actually possible that the locusts could have been these pods from a tree called the locust tree, but they also could have been literal locusts. Honey 
and locusts. The thing I thought about is one of the most memorable things about being baptized by John must have been the fact that breath mints hadn't been invented yet. You know, I baptize you in the, oh, really smell the honey and locusts. So John is just, he's a different kind of dude. And, and I kind of get why some people would go out to see him. I think every single teenager and young adult would go out to see him just because he's like a counterculture figure. It's just this thing that's going on. But what's interesting is that where John is preaching in Bethabara, it's 20 miles, 32 kilometers outside of Jerusalem. There's no cars. All these people don't own horses. They're walking 20 miles to go and hear a preacher. I don't know if any of us would walk 32 kilometers to hear a preacher. That's living at least. So why are people coming from so far away? I mean, I get he's interesting, but he's not that interesting just from rocking camel's hair. Well, later on, Jesus would tell us that John came in the spirit of Elijah. So who is Elijah and what does that mean? Well, well, Elijah was one of the most epic prophets that ever lived. On your outline, I, I have the section of scripture that has his whole life story. Go home and read it. He is like the original superhero. Elijah is just awesome. How awesome? He doesn't die, okay? A chariot of fire comes down and takes him up to heaven as I assume Elijah looks back and yells, best exit ever. Epic, epic guy, Elijah. And Elijah had uh, a protege named Elisha. And so when he leaves, Elisha sort of continues Elijah's ministry. And, and Elijah would wear this thing called a mantle. It's like basically some sort of old school like scarf thing that you wouldn't loop around. It would just hang over your neck, give a little extra flair to your robe, your tunic, whatever you were rocking. And when Elijah goes up to heaven, this mantle literally falls from the chariot of fire. Elisha catches it and he wears it. And so he's wearing... Elijah's mantle physically, but it's auto, also a representation that he is wearing the anointing, he's wearing the ministry, the calling, the power that was on Elijah. It's now on Elisha. And John the Baptist dressed like Elijah. This was sort of the standard wardrobe for dudes who lived in the wilderness. Camel's hair, leather belt, rocking it. And the rumor was going around that, hey, this, this guy is ministering in the power of like Elijah and Elisha. He preaches like him. He's got power like him. He looks like him. There was actually even a rumor around at that time that he actually was wearing the actual mantle of Elijah. He was wearing it. And so this is big, big news. Also factor in, it's been over 400 years since there was a legit prophet among the Israeli people. And so everyone wants to go out and find out what's going on. Is this guy like the reincarnation of Elijah? Is he just the next in line? Is this the Messiah that we've all been waiting for? What's going on? And so the temple in Jerusalem sends an inquiry team. They say, go find out what's going on. And this is what the text says. It says, but when he saw, when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism... He said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Welcome to church. That's sort of John's greeting. And we see two new groups introduced to our stories. We have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're going to be key players in the life of Jesus. Both of them are basically religious parties in a time where religion and politics are sort of fused into one. So first you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the super uptight ones, the legalists, the ritualists. They believed not only in following every law in the Old Testament, but they wanted bonus laws. So there were all these laws that people had come up with and passed down through oral tradition. And they followed all those as well and told everybody else that they should be following them as well. So they basically added to the word of God and said, yeah, well, God left some things out. You should also be doing these things. They were extremely orthodox, very influential. There's about 6,000 of them. The Sadducees are kind of the opposite. They're the, the liberalists, the rationalists, they're reformed, they're modernists, they're humanists. They denied that the word of God came from God completely. And later on, they didn't believe in any type of resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. Stop it. So as you may have picked up, John does not like these guys. He doesn't like these guys. If you really study the text, you can pick that up, that little subtle implication that he doesn't like them. And as we'll see, Jesus doesn't really like them either. Well, so, so why? Just because they're anti-establishment? Well, no, what Jesus and John hate about the Pharisees is that they took a relationship with God pulled all of the love out of it and turned it into a set of rules and made it a burden to people and added to it. And they took all the relationship out of knowing Jesus. And I'm not exaggerating when I say Jesus hates them for that. He hates them for that because they're making people miss the whole point of knowing God, which is a relationship. And he hates the Sadducees as well because the Sadducees have no faith you have religious leaders giving religious leadership to the people and they don't even have faith in God. They don't really believe all the promises of his word. And this really bugs Jesus. This really, really bugs John. So John delivers a friendly little greeting to these guys. Even though he's talking to everybody there, the, the concept is that he's addressing their leadership, this group of about 16 guys that have come from the temple. And he says, brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? And this was extremely insulting to them because any reference to vipers would take their minds back to Genesis 3 where Satan goes into the Garden of Eden as a snake. So what John is really saying is he's calling them sons of Satan. Sons of Satan. Good to see you today. How's it going? So but notice this, that John is not berating and yelling at sinners. He's not. He's not yelling at sinners. And Jesus never yells at him either. John is yelling at people who are self-righteous and claim to know God and misrepresent him, make following him a set of rules instead of a relationship. And John and Jesus hate that. But both John and Jesus have limitless compassion and love for those who are ready to admit that they need help that they need forgiveness. 
That's why Jesus says, he says, I didn't come for the healthy. He's saying healthy in quotations. He said, I, I came for the sick who know that they need a doctor. That's why I'm here. I'm saved, but I need Jesus every single day. And, and as the years go by, I only find myself realizing that I need him more every day. It's not like I find myself saying, you know, I'm at the place where I need Jesus Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. The more I know Jesus, the more accurately I see myself, and the more I realize how desperately I need him. I need his forgiveness every day, and, and the truth is the closer you get to Jesus, the less self-righteous you become, because you become more and more aware of how much you need his grace and how much you call on his grace. That's how you can tell if someone's with Jesus. They just have a grace about them because they've been with Jesus. John also points out the truth that many people don't want to hear. He points out the truth that there is wrath coming. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He points out the truth that one day, every single person is not going to answer the question, did you live a good life? Were you a good person? Did you vote conservative? Every single person one day is going to answer one question. Did you accept Jesus Christ or did you reject Jesus Christ? It'll really all come down to that. And for those who've rejected Jesus, there will be wrath. And, and it's easy to hear that and a lot of people get worked up and say, well, that's not a, it's not a very loving message. And the, the best analogy always is, it's like yelling to someone whose house is on fire, your house is on fire, and saying, that, that's a really inconsiderate thing to say. I've just been working on this house and here I am trying to have a nap in my house, and you have the nerve to tell me it's burning down. How dare you? How dare you? John tells them the truth, and John's name literally means, and this is amazing, the Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. How gracious? He's so gracious that he sent his son to share the message with us that we need saving so that none of us would die in ignorance. And then he sent his son as a sacrifice to save us because he's gracious, because he's loving. And the Pharisees and Sadducees were very proud that they were from the family line of Abraham. They were Jews, God's chosen people. The problem was they started to believe this entitled them to salvation. This entitled them to a special walk with God, that they were sort of above it all. They started buying into this. And John busts this idea by saying, God's able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Now remember, where, where's John preaching? He's in Bethabara. And what is literally within their view? It's the monument of the 12 stones from when they crossed the Jordan River. This monument to what God did for the people of Israel. And John is pointing to this pile of stones and he says, listen, if God needs more children of Abraham, he'll just make them. You'll turn these rocks into him. You don't have God's arm twisted. If he needs more, he'll just make it. He'll just do it. Trusting your family history to save you is just as foolish as trusting your good deeds to save you. Because God needs neither. He doesn't need him. It's not like God is up in heaven saying like, oh, I'm kind of depressed today. I know what I need, some more good deeds. Let me find some of those. I hope there's someone there to help me out. God lacks nothing. 
What he wants is he wants sons and daughters. He wants children who are in relationship with him. That's what God wants. John tells them that they should bear fruits worthy of repentance. And this is one of the ideas that comes up in Scripture again and again as a picture. The idea is that you can tell what kind of tree a tree is by the fruit that it bears. And you can tell whether a tree is living or dead by the fruit that it bears. And in Scripture, we're told again and again and again, listen, don't look at the tree. Look at the fruit. Look at the fruit. We might say, don't look at the Christian t-shirt. Look at the fruit. Don't look at the bumper sticker. Look at the fruit. Don't look at the TV shows they do and don't watch. Look at the fruit. Look at what's evident in their lives. That will tell you what's going on. Even when we talk about salvation, how are you being saved? I spent months and months and months trying to figure out, you know, in a church service, how do you make sure that people are saved? You give a gospel presentation at the end. How do you know that someone's saved? And eventually I realized you will only know months later if someone's saved. When enough time has passed to see if there is fruit. Is there fruit in their life? Is there evidence of change? We're not saved because we filled out a card. We're not saved because we prayed a prayer. We're saved because we've repented. We've had a change of mind, a change of heart. And that will produce a changed life as well. Repentance is to change your mind. And when your mind is changed, your beliefs change. And your beliefs drive your behavior. Your beliefs drive your behavior. We all know this to be true. We, we all know things, whether we're Christian or not, like until a person is ready to change, they, they won't change. We inherently understand that just because a person cries doesn't mean they've changed. If you have any experience with addictions, you, you know that the most heartfelt confession doesn't mean a person has changed. We all know in, in the context of marriage, crying in a counseling session doesn't mean change. Change is walked out in our actions in the way that we choose to live. So that's why Jesus is interested in repentance. He's interested in a changed mind. Jesus isn't like, I need to hear you apologize for that. Jesus is saying, change what you believe. Change what you believe. Get in line with the truth. In our text, it says, so the people asked him. And this is a good response from the people because John has said, listen, wrath is coming. And so the smart people present said, well, what are we going to do then? John answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, those are just basically items of clothing that you'd wear, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. John isn't saying, hey, you're saved by giving your stuff away. John is saying, this is what the fruit of repentance looks like. This is what a changed life looks like. One of the things that happens when you give your life to God is, is you start changing your belief about the idea that you own everything you own. And your belief becomes, listen, everything I am, everything I have belongs to God. So the question becomes, what does God want me to do with it? Day to day, moment to moment. That's what the fruit of repentance looks like. And tax collectors were infamous for overcharging people and pocketing the difference. So it says, then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. So if you're a tax collector, the fruit of repentance is honesty. He's saying, this is what it will look like in your life. You'll be honest. 
Soldiers were famous for always complaining about their pay and extorting people to get more money. So basically, Roman soldiers would say, listen, you need to give me a little kickback here or else I'm going to have to report that, uh, you know, you're spreading anti-Caesar gossip around. You know, I might have to get you whipped or something like that. And so they were basically low-level mobsters a lot of the time. And it says, likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, and what shall we do? And so he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be, be content with your wages. That's what the fruit of repentance looks like in the life of a soldier. But for all of us, the principle stands contentment. Contentment is a fruit of repentance, not constantly complaining, but being content with what God has given you in life. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not. They're all, they're all wondering, they're all thinking, is this guy the Messiah we've been waiting for? Who, who is this guy? This is something special. And the team that's been sent to check out who John is, they're expecting him to say he's the Messiah, because this had actually happened before. This would happen every couple of years around this time. Someone would show up and say, I'm the Messiah, and people would rally around him, and they would decide they're going to start a rebellion, and then the Romans would come in and kill them all, basically. So they're all thinking, is this, is this guy for real? Is he the real Messiah? Is this guy just the latest fruitcake who thinks he's the Messiah? So it says, John answered and he preached, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who's coming after me, he's talking about Jesus, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, and whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And baptism with fire is just another allusion to the Holy Spirit. Fire is used in a lot of references to the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible. John is saying, listen, the one coming after me, he's the one you've been waiting for. He's the one you've been longing for. He's the one we've all been waiting for. He says, my, my ministry is with water. But the guy coming after me, he's going to give you the Holy Spirit. There's no comparison between him and me. Now John goes into his nice, warm, fuzzy sermon. He says, speaking of Jesus who's coming, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire and many other exhortations he preached to the people. So John is going into greater detail here about the day of judgment, the, the wrath that is to come. And he's using an illustration here. And in, in those days when you harvested wheat, the, uh, the wheat husk was inedible. It was useless on its own. And so you'd crush it to remove the husk, the bad part, from the grain, the good part. And it'd basically end up with this pile on this floor when it had all been crushed. And they would take a winnowing fan, which looks kind of like a, like a leaf rake, you know, with those long plastic sort of, spikes all over it and they would scoop up a bunch of this pile and toss it in the air and they'd have the wind or some kind of fan going and the grain the good stuff was heavier than the chaff the bad stuff so you toss it up in there the good stuff would fall in a pile close to you the bad stuff would get caught in the wind and would blow further away and land in its own pile and they'd toss it up and this is what John is saying he's saying that's how it's going to be at the end of time man Every, everybody metaphorically is going to be tossed up and they'll fall into one of two groups. And then what they would do is they would have the pile of good grain. They, they would take the chaff, the bad stuff, and they would burn it so that it didn't attract rats or vermin or anything else like that. And they were left with just the good stuff. That whole process was called threshing. 
And it's a picture that appears in the Bible multiple, multiple times to describe what's to come. And this is what John is preaching. He's saying you're going to fall one day into one of these two piles. The one that belongs to Jesus or the one that doesn't. And Jesus is here to give you the opportunity to be his, to save you, to rescue you. That's why Jesus Christ has come. He's the only one who can rescue you. That's what John is teaching. This is the message that John chose to pave the way for, that Jesus chose to pave the way for his ministry on earth. This is the message. John was sent to ask the question, are you ready for the arrival of Jesus? Because Jesus was coming soon. And I would be lying to you today if I didn't tell you that the Bible says Jesus is once again coming soon. He's coming soon. And the Bible says that this time he's coming to divide us into those two groups. That's what he's coming to do. He's given the invitation to every single one of us to belong to him. All we have to do is choose whether or not we will accept it. And that there's no more important message you'll ever ever here in your entire life than that Jesus has come to save you. He's come to save me. Jesus didn't ask John to preach on three ways to be happy. He told John to preach a message of repentance. And that's not because Jesus is harsh or severe. It's because Jesus wants you to be ready. It's because Jesus wants you to welcome him into his life. He wants you to be his he wants you to fall in the pile with the grain. That's what he wants for you, and that's why he chose this message. So if you're not ready for Jesus, then today is your day. Don't leave. Don't think about it. Give your life over to Jesus. Repent and change your mind. Change your mind. Recognize that you need saving. You're going to have an opportunity to do that. Repentance can happen with regard to our overall view of Jesus whether or not we're saved. But repentance can also happen with individual issues in our lives, in different areas of our lives. And, and if you don't believe that God's plan is best for your life, if you don't believe it's the best way to live, you'll do, you'll do your own thing. If you're doing that, change and repent. You know, everything we do that goes against what God says, we do because ultimately we don't believe God in that area of our lives. And let me just be blunt. If you don't believe God's plan for relationships, if you don't believe that that's the best plan, then you're probably hooking up with your boyfriend or girlfriend. If you don't believe God's plan for relationships is best, you're probably looking at internet porn. And that's not because you have a desire to do something bad. It's because deep down, you don't really believe that God's plan is best. You don't really believe in that area he'll come through. So I just want to ask that we would begin thinking through our minds. Man, what, what are the areas where I just say, man, I, I know I'm not living how God wants me to live. But you'd maybe spend some time asking why. And maybe realizing that it's because you don't really believe that God's going to come through in that area. Yeah, he can save me, but, but he, can't, he can't fix that area. He can't come through in that area. Let me encourage you to repent and change your mind. He'll come through. He'll come through. And before you worry about changing your actions, you have to change your mind. You have to change what you believe. I encourage you today, take communion. Because when you take communion, you're reminded of one great truth.
that if God is able to solve the problem of sin, if God is able to overcome that, if God is able to work in our broken lives and give us a future with him in paradise that is better than anything we can imagine, if he can do that, then he can certainly do anything else. He can certainly do anything else. And he will come through. He always, always does.